0: There is a percentage of the population for whom the traumatic event, the death of the loved one, shakes the tree like it did for me, and you need treatment. You don't just need time. You don't need to take a walk. You don't need to read a book. You need someone to break up the energy because that energy is going to make you sick. And they're no longer connecting it to the death of the loved one. They just think like they're sick with something.
1: What's up, Dead Talkers? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dead Talks. Today we have Megan Reardon Jarvis, who is a clinical psychotherapist, a podcast host, TED Talk speaker, and a author of her most recent book, The End of the Hour. And this is what we're gonna talk about, what she talks about in her book, which was the mental health that she experienced after losing her father and her mother's death just in a short period of time. So it comes from a clinical aspect, but also obviously a personal aspect. And she explains her story, how she got through it, which is very applicable for anyone else going through it and all that good stuff. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And once again, if you guys have a moment at the end of the episode or even right now, if you want to hit pause, leave a five star review. If you do enjoy this show, again, it really helps push this podcast out there. It would mean the world. I'm going to stop talking. Let's get into the episode. So Megan and I just met last night at the lovely Claire Bidwell-Smith's house. If you haven't read her books or familiar with Claire, you should Google her right now. But we just had a a little party last night in California to celebrate the launch of your recent book.
0: Yes, my new book, End of the Hour. There we go. memoir.
1: In the beginning of the The hour with this podcast. There we go.
0: (laughs) Whatever that means. We're talking about the end in the start. Yeah, the end of the start. It's very unbranded. What is God?
1: uh, Exactly. So I, I do want to thank you for being here. This is so cool. I literally met you less than 24 dream, hours ago. dream come true and for I, me.
0: I, I, my reaction to was solid. You were <laughs> like on your phone, not participating. And I was like, oh my God, you're here.
1: <laughs> I know. And you're, like, you're, you're like, like, David. I'm like, David, you- I, Who the hell are you? I'm like, there's another more popular David here. I don't know if you got the right David. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So I was we like-, the, I was, Kessler, like well, not more popular, just another David. Okay, there we go. I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you. Shout out, David. Thank you for being here. Thank you for
0: having me. And thank you for coming last night to what was argued. I was like, this is the Studio 54 of grief. <laughs> it was like that, that, everyone it, in the grief space on the West Coast. It was place. wild.
1: I was just talking about that before he came here. People saw the photos from yeah. the party. I'm like, what is that? I was like, it's like everyone in the grief industry. Yeah. Before I started my podcast, <laughs> I was like, there's a grief industry? I, I mean, I know there's this and that, but I didn't realize how, communicate, how much of a community yeah. it is. So well, people. there's not
0: that many of us and and we get invited to the same things and we kind of share resources and you know, it's not a huge moneymaker, the grief world. We we are there to, you know, it's a it's a being in purpose mm-hmm. kind of work, right? So we all end up kind of knowing each other and supporting each other, which was what last night was about, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm learning that. I'm kind of getting introduced to that community more in person now, so it's fun. I get to meet people like you. So for uh, everyone in the Dead Talk community, uh, tell us why you're here and what your story is with grief. Sure, sure.
0: So I am Megan Bearden Jarvis. I've been a trauma therapist for 20 years. So I have been in the world of grief and loss for that long. When I was nine years old, my someone who my family sort of considered a cousin, you know how the way you have extended family in a teeny tiny town where I grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, drowned while my family and many other people were on the beach, but he was 16. You don't really watch a 16-year-old the way you do a four-year-old. And it was 1983. And in 1983, sort of the ethos around grief and bad things in general was to not talk to children about them. And so I grew up with that story in my background, but it happened where um, where we spent our summers and then at the end of the summer in, in late July. And then we went home, my five brothers and sisters and I, and where we went home to, no one knew that this had happened. So it just was an it. T- totally life-significant event that then really was never, ever talked about again. And what I didn't know then and couldn't have known is that when you have a childhood trauma, because you don't have the intellect or the support that an adult does to know that you need to talk about it or write about it, or you end up sort of feeling your feelings in a way that makes you think you are that way. So I worried a lot, you know, I did all that stuff that's really classic when there's been a tragedy. Like we were joking about it at the party last night that somebody was late and we were like, okay, we're all planning their funeral now. Because that's (laughs) sort of like the legacy of loss is that that's, you become anxious and you become more worried. For example, like I really worried about my older brother dying, who was, you know, almost the same age as this teenager. And those thoughts were not ever externalized because nobody talked about them. So none of the adults around me knew that I was doing those things. And as I grew older, what I could feel was that I didn't feel the same as other kids. And fast forward, when I was in my 20s, I went through a breakup that was really terrible, but it was just a normal breakup. And I knew, based on my friends, sort of, they got a bit of a distracted look in their eye as I was continuing to talk about how awful this was for me. I knew that my reactions to things were a bit outsized. And I went to a therapist, and sort of in the first session, she said, what bad thing happened in your childhood?
1: Immediately. Immediately. Based on how you were responding and reacting and feeling?
0: Yeah, based on what—she she had asked some questions, but she she was really, I think, picking up on my feeling really other and having some outsized reactions to beliefs about myself that i just wasn't kind of okay i was different than everybody else and i trained as a trauma therapist so i now i know what she was doing and looking for but she was the first one to tell me you know you sound like so- someone who has had childhood trauma there are lots of other people
1: out there like you and so how would you specifically describe those those uh signs in regards to at least you specifically. I know you mm. just explained it, but how would you dumb it down?
0: So hypervigilance is one. You know, you're just paying attention to a level of detail as though the world is threatening in a way that other kids did not. Um, I had a lot of stories about why I was—I had roles in my life about, like, how it was important for me to help people. You know, that, that people-pleasing kind of concept. All of that is really typical when there's been a tragedy. You're trying not to ruffle feathers, and you're really trying to make sure you're checking all your mirrors in case
1: there's calamity
0: headed in your direction. And kids don't know they're doing it, but they are
1: doing it. And that goes back to, I guess, not knowing what it is, back to if you have trauma as a kid or something happens to you, and you don't work it out, or you you obviously don't have the tools to understand it. So whatever your feelings that come with that trauma just feels like, oh, that's me. Yeah, yeah. Now because it came from this.
0: Yeah, so kids, how they feel is who they are. They don't have a way of distinguishing that. So kids are not like, I feel sad. I mean, we try to teach them to say that. What they say is, I am sad. And that's just the limit of their intellect. And the thing about trauma is, you know, Trauma is an event or a series of events that happens that leaves a negative imprint on your system and causes your central nervous system to be overwhelmed. So it's hard to intellectually process and it makes you feel afraid, maybe even afraid for your life. You know, COVID was a collective trauma that we were all in, but for some people that the impact of that trauma was like they were living their best life finally. So going through a trauma doesn't always leave you traumatized. Traumatized is when there is a negative kind of tattoo left. And that becomes the hypervigilant. It becomes how you live. And I really was aware. You know, I I gravitated. I had... (laughs) my best friend was a kid who was just like utterly reckless. I mean, he did things that scared the crap out of me, but that's who I wanted to spend time with. I was living in fear and trying, you know, to keep everything tight and narrow and follow the rules, but the person I spent time with was like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> so that was, you know, I the definition that children live in in trauma. They can't they don't really know. But we have these things called the ACEs Study, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which Kaiser Permanente and NIH put together, which is these things that do happen in your childhood that make you more susceptible to having a hard time later on. A
1: hard time in general?
0: Yeah. So it's things like, you know, So And the the reason it's important is it's not something you did. It's just something you were raised around. So if there's drug drug addiction in the family, if there's any kind of abuse, someone is incarcerated, someone important to you is incarcerated, if there's a death, all of those things we assume are going to land inside a child's system and, and impact how they feel about their lives going forward. And I had some of those. Yeah. And so so when I went into therapy in my early 20s I was like this is amazing I'm going to be able to transform how I feel. My therapist was like we can take these definitions off of you and you can live the way you see other people living and I did. I was able to do that for a little while. But in 2017 my dad died of small cell cancer which was a you know a year long death and I participated in that it wasn't sudden. Um, And in some ways, it was kind of like the best year of our life because we were very mindfully intentional in relationship with each other. But two years later, my mom died suddenly while I was on vacation with her. And pretty much immediately, like within the seconds of me learning that she had died, I was beginning to experience what I knew. I mean, it was like seeing a truck coming for me because I treated the early symptoms of PTSD.
1: You treat. What do you? How do you
0: mean? So I treat PTSD. Oh, with, that's what you. Yeah. Do. Okay, so you so do clients right. come in because they are having central nervous system. So your your brain and your um and your spinal cord. It's almost like they're ringing like a gong, and when that happens, the way that I always sort of describe it colloquially is like if you imagine that the that your brain and your spine they become overwhelmed like a flood. They're flooded, and the bridge that normally allows you to get communication, washes out. So the mailman who's trying to send the messages from the body to the brain and the brain to the body is just like throwing the mail. <laughs> you know,
1: it's like... The old drunk mailman? The
0: old drunk mailman. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, some of them are not... Some of the messages aren't getting there. Some of the electrical currents are going to the wrong places. And then, you know, you're not eating, not sleeping. You're having sort of crazy thinking. So
1: you tell me you recognize this, the PTSD within yourself... Immediately.
0: Yeah, because what happened, uh, my mom had had a short illness. I had been with her and I was driving my kids. I had um, a van full of, minivan full of kids. And we were going to pick up my godson. And we got there and I had this sensation in my body. I was thinking about the episode you did with your intuitive because it was, I think of this as an intuitive sign. I had um, a sensation in my my body that felt like water breaking, Ooh. and then and so much so that I sort of looked down at my lap, expecting to see water, but I wasn't pregnant. And then I had a thought that I could see that said she died.
1: What do you mean a thought you can see?
0: Like like a word like a word bubble. I okay. could see it with my eyes, and it came this way, and it was like she died. And I called my husband, who was back at my
1: mother's house, and she had died. So you just had this reaction, intuitive reaction without being actually told your mom died, but you knew found out your mom died through your intuition. Does that yeah. makes sense? Did I said that correctly? Yeah. What does that even mean? Like I mean I know what it means, but what does that mean?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean I don't know. My youngest son who then was 6 6, yeah. He was with my husband who's English in England. And the week before my mom died, and he, my, I, you know, I was just talking to my husband, how's how are the kids? And he was like, you know, Nicholas can't sleep. He keeps waking up, like, bear, you know, startling awake and saying he's really afraid someone he loves is going to die. What? And so the day my mother died, this is all, I swear it's true, the day my mother died, you know, kids are kids. He didn't mean this in the crappy way it's going to sound, but he said, I, my, my stomach doesn't feel scary anymore. Wait. So I don't know. Like, I don't know what that is. I just know that there's energy in the body, right? There's energy out there. Like quantum physics says energy is not destroyed even when people die. And I know, you know, you've sat in that chair for a long time. I'm sure you've heard these stories. I've sat in my chair for a long time. People tell me stories, and this is mine. That's so wild. Yeah,
1: it's not like you're coming from a a background of uh, mediums or any of that kind of world. It's just a personal experience you had.
0: Yeah. So I called my husband and said, I think she's dead. And then I got in the car with the kids and was like, we got to go. And headed, we were in B- in Boston, headed back to Cape Cod. And my husband then called me back and was like, you need to pull over. So like he needed me to pull over to tell me what I had already told him. And so when he told me that really like, it confirmed it, right? I knew, but it confirmed it. And almost like a truck driving towards me, I could see this idea of it's my fault she died. Why did
1: that come to you?
0: I think because it, and it immediately became a repetitive thought, like a rumination. And I think ruminations are there actually to protect you. You know, when you walk around a track, like a high school track with a thought, it's no new information. You're literally doubling back on the place that you've already been. There's nothing new. And if you're walking around, people don't like when I say stuck in grief. So I just say you're looped in grief. It's the same thing. But I think those thoughts, those big thoughts, why didn't I do this? If only I had done that. I actually think they're protecting you from the reality like I had in that moment, which is like, shit, I am going to have to live my life now without my mom. How in the world am I going to do that? Like, how is that even a possibility?
1: So how does ruminating on thinking that it was your fault protect you? If anything, wouldn't you innately think that that's driving you to a place of Unnecessary guilt.
0: But that's a nice logical math problem with it, but <laughs> but it's such a powerful thought. And it is relentlessly allowing me the p- part of the experience, which is just sorrow. So it instead of like I think Your one distraction. of Distraction. Yeah, distraction. I think one of the hardest things for the human experience is feeling helpless. And we are the most helpless when someone we love has died. I mean, we can't Can't do anything. We can't fight against it. We can't run away, you know, but we can go into kind of this freeze state. And freeze is where trauma happens. And I was in this freeze state and it was like, well, it's your fault you're here. And it's your fault you're here, even though it's a shitty thought. It isn't helpless. It implies that you have agency. Uh, Okay. Right. So it's. It's terrible, right? but it's a little bit of a gift.
1: Okay, that's, that's a new way of looking. I mean, I've never really taken that perspective before. I feel like I immediately hear these things, and it's like, oh, that's not wow Start logically thinking, like, obviously, that's guilt that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to take as true, but now you're looking at it from a totally different script that is potentially protecting you. I think so. Wow.
0: Because I think I needed the guilt to distract me, right? Like a magician's sleight of hand, like— Put your focus over here.
1: You're not a rabbit out of the hat. Pull the guilt <laughs> out of the hat. There you go. Because
0: the other choice in that moment is like, look at what is really happening. This person, at the time my mom died, it was 45. I had not lived a minute on the planet without her.
1: So, how long does that protect you, though? You know what I mean? It's, I can't be protected. Well, it didn't
0: continue to protect me, right? So, I got sick with that and and I had this whole meta thing going on which is like I knew that it was rumination. I kn- I knew that if I didn't stop it, it had the capacity to like pull me under. Okay. And it was so powerful, so fast. I knew I was probably not going to be able to do it without sort of external buoys and
1: support. What kind of buoys?
0: Other therapists? good treatment like EMDR and somatic therapies that help move energy through the body. I mean, those are the things that I treat people with for traumatized loss.
1: I mean, okay, there's a lot of angles I want to learn about your experience of grief, but the somatic therapy. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that.
0: So somatic, somatic just means of the body, right? And so our experience with our entire lives is somatic. We, What we're doing right now is impacted by our eyes, how we feel, you know, what we smell, all of it. And that's how we create memory and how we create reality. S- what, what somatic therapies are saying is that you have a visceral experience of a terrified moment that's kind of trapped inside your body. So if you asked me if I could like If you gave me a really good film director, I could recreate without any trouble the exact moment that my husband called me. I was in a parking lot. There was like a crappy, broken down old Dairy Queen. You know, I could tell you what it smelled like. Like I could make that all again. And when you're in that experience in terror or you're in that experience in deep sorrow, you can be... Triggered back into that experience. And so what somatic therapies do is they bring the memory back up. We do it slowly and carefully. We say, what was it like? What did it smell like? What was the light like? And we allow you to get that energy kind of back in your body. And then rather be rather than being stuck like I was in that moment, you say and ask your imagination to come online, what would you have rather had in that moment? So I ended up checking myself into inpatient treatment because I could not regulate my my body. I was not sleeping. I was not eating. I threw my back out epically. I write about it in the book. I mean, to the point that like I couldn't get up to use the bathroom. I mean, I was just falling all the way apart. And when I went into treatment, the therapist there took me to that moment you know, this terrifying moment where suddenly I can see sort of the train wreck of PTSD coming for me. And she asked, what did you need in that moment? And what my imagination offered, she was like, you can have anything that will be helpful. And the very first thought that came to mind was, I imagined my older brother with his wife driving up, right? Like a kid being taken care of. And that my sister-in-law would have driven the van full of kids because I was worried about those kids, right? Like I wanted them to be taken care of. I couldn't leave them in a parking lot. But then I got in the car in my imagination with my brother and we drove to my mother together. And I didn't have to do it by myself. And I didn't have to be the grown up in charge of a van full of kids. And that didn't happen but a little bit it feels like that's what happened. That's what somatic therapy does, is it uses your imagination to shift the energy
1: so that your body remembers it differently. Oh, so you're almost tricking your body? You are. That's so, what you're doing. So is that more mind over body in many ways, or is it
0: it's not they call it, a, they talk about it as a as a bottom up. So the so you
1: bring up the feelings. Yeah. And then the top kind of polishes it up. Yeah.
0: So in somatic therapies, which is like sensory motor psychotherapy, which is Pat Ogden or um, sensory motor experiencing, somatic experiencing, which is Peter Levine's models, they would actually have you recreate how you're standing. So how are you standing in that moment? And then they would say, and then what did you do? You picked up the phone and then what did you do? And you go really slow and then they ask, but what? What would have been better for you in that moment? How how can we help you feel differently in this moment?
1: So they really bring up the feelings. Really, really, I do the, you do your best to get back to that place, get back to that yeah. feeling. What you exactly what you felt. So you're you're almost having that experience again, at least somatically. You are. You are having that experience again, and then you play a little magic touch on there to recreate that scenario.
0: Yes, and sometimes what people would say would help them is like Hagrid from Harry Potter. <laughs> it's not always something real. Right. And then we say— Oh, like
1: bring- Hagrid just pulled
0: up. Bring Hagrid. What's Hagrid going to do? <laughs> like, that's, that's interesting. So it doesn't—that's why it's not intellectual in that way. It's You're not even logical. Right, because we are, we are deeply childlike, Yeah. right? I mean, children believe in fairies and Santa and all that stuff. Like, they use that magic— in order to make sense of their life.
1: The power of the imagination is real.
0: It is. And so it's hard. It's like if you and I talked about what would work, it it wouldn't work. It's like you have to get it. You have to get into the energy of that moment and ask what would work in the moment that you feel terrified. And the therapy took, I don't know, it took me eight years to get trained in it. People who do it are very skilled because you don't want to trigger someone into their trauma reaction. You want to keep them right into the sweet spot of you're experiencing this, but it's not overwhelming you. And this works for you. Yeah, and also EMDR, which I, I you may have heard of, mm-hmm. but EMDR is a more sort of simple and brain spotting is a version almost of EMDR. The combination of those two therapies— worked for me almost immediately. Now, saying worked for me, I still had trouble sleeping. I still have trouble sleeping. My mother
1: died four years ago. If you don't mind, explain EMDR for people listening.
0: Yeah, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's a terrible description of a terrible... Like, that doesn't help us. But basically, the brain codes information like a tree, like in tree branches. And traumatic memories are, it's like permanent marker on your brain. And what EMDR does is it calls up the memory. So in my example, it would be, Megan, remember being in that parking lot. Remember what that felt like and smelled like and what did you see and what did you hear and bring that energy into my body. And then either using a light bar or a hand or touch, you use bilateral stimulation, which means you you activate both sides of the brain, the right side of the brain, which is the activation side, and the left side of the brain, which is the calming, soothing side. And if you think about it like a scales, what we're trying to do is just take that memory and and cut it up and Distributed across the brain instead of in that one part where it's permanent marker. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I've done EMDR, it literally feels like something that used to be right behind my forehead kind of shifts to over my ear, so I can kind of only see it out of the corner of my eye, and it's more like a watercolor.
1: Is that science? Is that um? Could that be like literally? tracked like brain scans or something like this? Yeah.
0: So when we, when they, the woman who discovered this, discovered it by, I mean, it's, it's an absurd story, walking down the street and just like flicking her eyes left and right and then discovered that it caused this like sense of calm in her. That's the real story of how this therapy was.
1: I'm pretty sure it's a Scientology story too. It's like like,
0: (laughs) insane. I mean, when I first heard it, I was like, don't tell people that no (laughs) one will use this therapy. What are you talking about? It's absurd. (laughs) <laughs> but it it there's lots of stuff like if you um if you look at how professional athletes overcome their nerves it's always through repetitive action that's on both sides of the body jumping jacks and cross boxing and because we are our steadiest when our energy is held in both places. And what we know in these brain scans, and there are lots of people, you know, brain scans are kind of recent. We can see that the activation inside the brain is different after EMDR.
1: And you see it shifting. Yeah. You see it moving. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. There you go. Scientific people that were look to see at facts. That. Okay. <laughs> yeah, look at the brain scans, people. That's okay. So, um, somatic therapy, EMDR, those those are the two things that really seem to have helped you. When you agree,
0: yeah. And then there's another one which is called IFS, which is not, um, which is Dick Schwartz. It's not. It stands for Internal Family Systems. What acronyms here? I know why. Why do we have to do this? Like, I mean, why do we have to call them? It's easier than these the whole things. thing, I
1: suppose. But.
0: but, but, I mean, even Dick Schwartz would say he wishes he didn't call it IFS. So, IFS is the therapy that's at the root of the movie Inside Out. If you've seen that cartoon, yeah, so it's where there's like these six core emotions, so IFS talks about this is this is my way of saying it. I'm sorry, Dick, but this is how I describe it. So, it's like if you were to m- imagine getting on a bus. And in the back of the bus are all possible bus drivers, like every part of your personality that sometimes makes decisions for you. (laughs) And some are great drivers and some are reckless drivers. And in certain circumstances, you will find yourself with a different driver. And so in IFS work, what we're looking at is like, who are the drivers? Who are the passengers? Who should sometimes come up to the front and drive? And do we have the capacity to swap out a driver? and that also was really helpful cuz one of the things that i discovered is that the thread of my childhood trauma was that i had a lot of what we would call codependent behaviors. Codependency isn't so much like oh you have an alcoholic relative and you hand them an al- you know you hand them a beer which is how we sometimes make codependency sound. Codependency really is rather than checking in with yourself and your own needs and your own wants, you check in with someone else first. And you make sure they're covered. And I did do that quite a bit as a child. It was like, if I just make sure everybody else is okay, I'm probably going to be okay. Like, if I make sure everyone's in a lifeboat, then there'll probably be room for me.
1: Yeah, so codependent sometimes by just the semantics of it, sometimes I always took it as literally dependent on someone else. This is more you're worried about other people more than yourself. Well, it is
0: you're dependent on someone else. So like your functioning is dependent on... If on I if, you, being, if I okay. had a codependent relationship with you and you said to me, what do you want for dinner? I would say, what do you want for dinner? Right. Okay. What do you want for dinner? Got it. So I am dependent on you making decisions or you being well right. or you being healthy. That is. It doesn't mean that I can't do it myself. It's that I dynamically don't do it myself. Got and it. And so okay. I was pretty codependent with my mother, like trying to help her um, with, you know, five brothers and sisters in this state of trauma in my childhood. And then when my dad died, I kind of accidentally, in in my treatment, they called it a renaissance. Like they made it nice. Like I was Michelangelo in painting, but it was like you had a renaissance of codependency, <laughs> which I didn't really notice because I didn't live near my mother. I did, It wasn't like I was doing the things that I had done as a child. But then when she died, you know, a codependent needs the person. To be dependent.
1: Right. Now it's when gone. she
0: died, I was like, who the hell am I?
1: Uh, and how do I live right. my yeah.
0: life? And I had this moment... It's not in my book but I had I wrote an essay about it where I was like sitting on the couch and looking at the mantle of my fireplace and there's like a photo from her house there's candlesticks she gave me like shells from the beach near her and I was like is anything that is anything mine mm-hmm. did I even paint this house this color cuz I like it yeah. I just was really profoundly lost and IFS helped me kind of like find which parts of me were true, which parts of me have been there a long time, who did I want to drive the bus, how did I want that bus to be driven. And you know, like when you have profound and deep loss, you don't get to go back anywhere. There's no going back. I didn't go back home. I just went back to the house that I had been living in. You have to still become a griever, which requires you to kind of embrace some novelty Yes. So I was also kind of given in treatment a bit of a like, okay, but how do you want to live? And that hadn't, it's not that it hadn't been there before, but you know, I have three kids, I have a husband, I have a business, I have five brothers and sisters, you know, a pretty heavy codependent streak. I suddenly, you know, I was really angry after my parents died, just like angry at everybody. Angry at the UPS man who just like kept delivering boxes. Like not the world, at the UPS man. God, he just <laughs> seemed so chipper all the time. And I was like, dude, this planet is not on its correct axis anymore. Stop just being normal.
1: Wait. So how how long? So when you mentioned the PTSD, then you know we kind of we mentioned the practices uh, between those three methods that work for you. How long were you in a in that? PTSD state for before you started getting better? So
0: I would say, so if you look at the, t- at the typical, um, if you look at, th- at the protocol for PTSD, it's less about the length of time and more about the intensity of treatment. But, but in order to qualify as having PTSD, your symptoms are happening after the event, right? So the event is already passed. You do not need to be in a state of chaos and, and turmoil or fear, but you still feel that all the time. So my as mom- As you're still in the moment. As you're still in the moment. And, and you can be pulled back into it, right? That's Triggered is a hard word, particularly for people who have had gun violence in their life. But that's what we mean when we say you sort of time travel back into that moment. That is a PTSD reaction. And that just never stopped. So that thought that I had, it's my fault that she died. It started, you know, kind of instantly, there was a lot of stuff that need. there's a lot of stuff that has to happen after someone dies. And I did a lot of that stuff, like write a eulogy and, you know, put things in the paper. And so that stuff was distracting. But when there was no more stuff, that thought was relentless. It was there, you know, every 90 seconds. There's
1: idle times, the quiet times.
0: Yeah, yeah, all the time. And, so, and again, I had this like metacognition of like, this is not good. This is, so my mother died on, uh, on August 13th and I checked myself into inpatient facility on November 1st.
1: Okay, so not that long what was that two months
0: yeah not too, not that I long know. at all yeah, it's a two that um, what the people that I treat who come in to see me because I mostly you know part in the book I write about my dad's death because it did not traumatize me. It was like little cups of grief that I drank you know my mom's was like being waterboarded and almost dying, right? And that's how that felt. And I write about the two because we don't do a great job in the, in the death space of sort of helping people know the difference and you can be doing fine, but like your great aunt Linda is like, it's been three weeks. You shouldn't be crying. Like she needs great aunt Linda needs to be better educated, but also there is this, there's, there's some, you know, disparity about the percentage of the population, but there is a, Percentage of the population for whom the traumatic event, the death of the loved one, shakes the tree like it did for me. And you need treatment. You don't just need time. You don't need to take a walk. You don't need to read a book. You need someone to break up the energy because that energy is going to make you sick. And what's happened for me as a clinician is I see people who are having symptoms after a year. They've been sick for a year. They've stopped talking about it to people because they know. You know, they feel kind of crazy, and they know there's something wrong with them.
1: That stigma that I'm still at this place a year later.
0: Well, and for a lot of people, particularly men, I would say, they're no longer connecting it to the death of the loved one. They just think, like, they're sick with something. And so often, these folks will have gone to see doctors about chronic inflammation, about headaches, about... Physical
1: physical. Symptoms. Yeah,
0: because... We, the brain will make you sick. I mean, we have 12 cranial nerves that go down into our body and our body is built of 12 systems. And every one of those nerves, the mailman again with the bad mail, every one of those nerves is sending information and the body then sends information back up into the brain. And so you get this loop where you're not sleeping, you're not eating, but some of the symptoms are not as obvious. So... You know, I have seen people who are having regular migraines. They they lose their sight. They have hives. They have lock jaw. They their hair is falling out. Their skin is really dry. All of that. They have lower back pain.
1: Um and it's rare and I want to say rare because I don't know, but I feel like it is often anecdotally people don't correlate that with something that's going on up here. Or even there's that so
0: much time has, so, so think about how much time we get off work. Most, most companies give you three days. All three days, three days. So like if your dad died in Michigan, you couldn't even get there and get back without having to take some PTO, you get three days. And I just want to say this Johnson and Johnson gives everyone in their company 30 days. So it can be done that that's a new policy of theirs. And I just think that's amazing. So if we're living in a culture, that's like, well, you get three days. Or Great Atlanta does like you're three weeks, you shouldn't be crying anymore. If we have that message that people feel okay about saying to me, right? It's an outdated message. It was never accurate. But if we don't have any comparable new messaging of like, no, it's much more like this experience for a long period of time. And, it, you know, oh, I had a, mine looked like this. If we don't have that, people don't even connect the fact that their dad died a year ago and they feel super weird unlike anybody else don't want to go out to see people don't really like their friends anymore and are kind of thinking about quitting their job and aren't sure if they married the right person Oof. that is what comes into my office or somebody sent them into their office into my office because they're going to leave them because their behavior their irritability and their sleeplessness and their lack of interest in
1: anything. And they, they come in, so again, not correlating where they just say, I feel this way. Yeah. and you, feel, you have to figure out what it is. Yeah,
0: so much like my— gr- It's not always grief. Yeah, my therapist—it's not always grief, but when there has been a death, they are not always saying, like, "Do you, hey, Megan, do you think the two could be connected? I mean, when my therapist said to me, did anything bad happen in your childhood? I said No. <laughs> because I had never talked about it. It had never been identified as problematic. I came into the next session. And I was like, you know, it, it's probably nothing, but this teenager drowned while my entire family was on the beach.
1: Oh, that little thing? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And my brother found him in the water and my mother, you know, cried every night. She was like, yeah, that's <laughs> what I mean.
1: Well, Megan, uh, Right. Yeah.
0: But many people I will, and again, I feel like this is just sort of, I'm giving qualitative answers here, but I would say it's—in my experience, it's worse with men. I will say, how long have your symptoms been going on? Well, probably like eight to ten months. Okay, what—did ha- anything happen eight to ten months ago? Like, no, I don't think so. Well, you know, like my best friend died, but I don't think that has anything to do with it. And— like denial? I just—not a connection, That we haven't taught people what the symptoms are. You know, we grieve with our bodies, but we, I always say this, like my 11-year-old son had a class on puberty before he went through puberty. So that when his voice drops and the hair is in the weird places, he doesn't freak out that he's dying of something, right? Like That's why we teach them. And also, we don't want them to learn from kids. Because kids, oh man, the things I was told on the back of the bus (laughs) when I was a child. We don't do the same about, you know, and, and like, I've had three babies. There are all these classes and all these books about like, yeah, your gums can bleed while you're pregnant. Like, thank God someone told me that because I would have been at the dentist if I hadn't (laughs) known that like, yeah, your hormones cause this to happen. We don't really do that with grief and loss. And we, we actually absolutely could. We couldn't tell you exactly what's going to happen to you, but we really can talk about the 12 systems in the body are all impacted by trauma the death of a loved one is a significant and profound trauma that, you know, we do better when we can fight or flight or flee. So if, if someone's following me down a corridor and I'm able to fight them or run away, I, the trauma is not going to lock into my system. But when someone dies, there's nothing to fight and there's nothing to flee. So we are actually more susceptible just because it's death to feeling that energy in a way that makes us feel helpless. And helplessness
1: is where trauma comes in. So then what do you recommend for someone as opposed to giving it a year and realizing you still feel like this? What, is, what do you recommend for someone early on?
0: Yeah, you know, so what I would say is you deserve both to be educated and helped. And, you know, people, if you are feeling unlike yourself, you don't have to wait any time what what often happens is something terrible happens, and then then the peep, the loved ones will call me and be like, I, "We need a therapist, and we need the books, and we need the podcasts." And what I say is, just give them a minute. They just fell overboard and are trying not to drown. If you can give them the name of a therapist, but they may not need a therapist. You can give them the books, but they probably are. I mean, I. I couldn't read for almost a year after my dad died.
1: I love that you're saying that as someone who just released a book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Don't (laughs) read my book. (laughs) I found memoir so comforting after my mom died. I read like 188 books on grief and loss, most of which were memoir. And memoir is almost always a story about loss. Mostly I just saw myself in there. I just felt like when, you know, we're talking now, you're nodding your head. Like that's really a profound Way to help someone who is going through a loss is to just nod. It's like you're making sense to me. I understand you. That because it's so scary and isolating, and you don't understand it yourself.
1: Yeah. That's that is a big thing. I mean, just it's funny, I'm nodding my head, but even if someone nods ahead and they may not understand what you're saying, just that feeling of listening, even. That's right. You know what I mean? That's right. The, exactly. They I don't made, know how you've been saying this whole time. Yeah, <laughs> they
0: may not, but yes, the the uh, the listening. So I have this guy. I have a podcast. Grief is my side hustle, and I do some stuff on my Instagram. And I have this guy who, anytime I use jargon, he'll send me a DM like, Megan, what does holding space mean? People don't know what that means. <laughs> and really, what we're just trying to teach people is to understand that, like, whatever the experience you are having with grief is, just what it is. But if you are in distress, and what I say to people is, if your symptoms are getting worse and not better, I when, I don't give you the name of a therapist if you call me. I say, call me back in three months. I'm not going to send you books. I'm going to wait a couple of months. Because there is a whole group of folks who just kind of find their way forward. They're going to go look for their... There was some people at the party last night that were like, I went to Compassionate Friends. I went... They don't need you to inundate them while they're drowning by throwing books at them and the names of a therapist. It's so loving. But you can pause for a second and just let them get their get their stroke in the water. First. And if they
1: don't get the stroke, what do you recommend from the outside of seeing someone that is
0: So you know, what you don't want to do is say, you do not have your stroke. You know, we are not here to pass judgment on you anybody else having right a hard time, yeah. right? <laughs> that is not a good plan. What, what works better is to say, how are you doing? Yeah. Are, you, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Okay. What, you know, what do you know about that? Do you have any plans for that? Is there any way that I can help with that? And because, again, grief is really isolating. And for a lot of us, we just don't believe anybody can help. Mm-hmm. But when you are suffering, you're just like if I hurt my elbow, you wouldn't be like, well, I mean, let's wait a year and see you know you'd be like, go talk to somebody. Yeah. Um, I think it might be tennis elbow like okay, well, go talk yeah, to I'll somebody check, who, yeah and then let the doctor decide. Mm-hmm. So that's what I say with trauma is if you're not sure if there's help to be had, go ask somebody who knows more about it than you do and then you can still be like screw them i
1: didn't like their plans right and you can find something else maybe yeah or definitely find something else maybe like it works for different people absolutely and everything you just everything we've covered in this episode is just like a per, you think there's a perfect blend of your per, your own experience/ slash what you've seen in your office with patients
0: yeah you know i spent 20 years feeling like i understood my clients When I sat down to write, I was really writing as a therapeutic process. Like writing narrative therapy is really about putting out on a piece of paper the story that you can live with. When my mom first died, I couldn't even say those words. But now I have sort of, you know, the soundbite of what happened. Like my dad died, then my mom died. I got PTSD. I checked myself into an inpatient facility. But it took some time to be able to like own that as mine. So in the beginning, I was just writing as a process, just like helping me figure out what the hell just happened. The product part of that, the turning it into a book, is so that it can help other people and connect to other people. And it feels good to me, like the connection where somebody says, I read this, it made sense to me, that helps me. But I, my book is filled with Easter eggs, It's filled with Easter eggs for my siblings. It's filled with Easter eggs for people who helped me, but it is filled with Easter eggs for my clients. Every story that I bother to tell is a story I heard 10 times from a client. So when I'm talking about one of my chapters is me just like telling my husband to fuck off. (laughs) I'm serious. Like, I just want him to be responsible for my pain and I like throw him out of the house. And I am not the only person I know who nearly, you know, ended a relationship because they were in so much psychic and emotional pain. So I chose to write that story because I wanted my clients to be like, that's that story I told Megan. Because, you know, in a memoir, you get to decide what stories you're going to tell. I told stories of sort of losing my mind in medical environments, because I've heard, you know, the pain of the smells and the sounds and the way that doctors talk to you. I have thousands of those stories that have been told to me. So when I chose to talk about my dad being in the hospital, it was like a wink and a nod and a and a hand to my clients to just, you know, grief is a universal human experience that threads us all together. And you just don't really know what lap of that track we're on but we'll all be on the lap where it's like how am I gonna how am I gonna live a life without this person we all hit that lap at some point
1: that's amazing and that's why it is so important to share more stories because again you as much as stories are different, there are so many similarities. Like even just like those basic emotions, There's that's the beauty of your memoir and just talking on this podcast. It's going to be someone that connects. And I think that's what someone wants, especially if you don't have people in your life that have had experience with loss or whatever it is you're going through. Just to connect with someone and know, oh, there's someone else out there, alleviate some of that potential loneliness and isolation that I think often comes with whatever you're going through, let alone grief or loss, especially grief or loss. So yeah, I commend you for that.
0: The other thing that I think about a lot is like, there's a lot of stuff in life that we've never done before that we have to figure out. And this is going to sound insane when I say it, but sex is one of those, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to figure that out and you can talk to your friends about it and you can talk to your sex ed teacher about it. You can read about it in a book, watch the movies, but like you have to figure that out. Yeah, once you're there, right. You got to figure it out yeah. and it behooves you to figure it out and you can figure it out and you will figure it out. And you know, that's also the truth about grief, is that all of the ways that we can talk about it before and after is just normalizing the discomfort around it. But what's interesting about grief is we're like, well, that was awkward. Let's not do that again. <laughs> but like you would never do that with your sex life. You know what I mean? You have to yeah, sometimes. Well, you have to become a <laughs> sexual big being, right? You have to figure it out. You have to like move through the awkward and then the uncomfortable and add that part to your life. And with grieving, It's not like, oh, I grieved this time when I was 12, and so then I don't have to grow again when I'm 40. Mm -hmm. Like, you kind of have to figure it out over and over again. But when you're successful figuring it out when you're 12, when you feel like, yeah, I was able to manage that. I had enough support. I asked for people. I found things that helped me. I mean, that's one of the questions I ask grievers, like, what what did help? And they tell me these incredible things, like they started an herb garden, or they— picked up the violin, which they haven't played since they were 11, or they climbed mountains, or they traveled. Some of that stuff, I'm like, I would never do that. Yeah. So that's not going to work for me. But in my office, I have a big whiteboard, and I write down everything everyone's ever told me helped them, including drinking, one-night stands, like stuff where I'm like, well, I don't want you to do too much of that. Yeah. But I'll anything that helps, let's put it up on the board cool. so that when someone's in that overwhelmed moment, they can look at that and be like, okay, well, whatever it is that I think might work. Let me try it.
1: Huh. Would you call it anything? What do you call that wall?
0: Well, I wrote, I've written another clinical book that's coming out next year and I, it's just called the grief world word cloud. It's hmm. in the book. Um, but I've been keeping, keeping that list for about 20 years. That's
1: amazing. That's a cool yeah. list. That's a badass list. Yeah. That could be, that's a list that could be for so many different things, let alone this. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, thank you. This is badass. This is, I've come so happy we did this within 24 hours. I can't and even believe you're it. You're across from me and now we just had a podcast. Your podcast
0: is, <laughs> is, has been such, like, just personally in my ears. I mean, I told you this last night that it was really um, personally transformative to me to hear you talk to your mother about her experience parenting you and then listening to your experience um, because I won't have those talks with my mom. And your mom is not like my mom, and you are probably not that much like me. But you doing that did that thing that I was talking about, where it's like just allowed my imagination to take me to a place that I hadn't really considered or thought about before. And I think about it all the time. I think about that particular episode all the time.
1: That means a lot. I mean, I think about that episode, so I I, I never really framed it as, you know, someone else. Uh, It's not your mom, and it's not you. But seeing in that lens and putting yourself in an imaginative state that having that experience with your mom, it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the episode of you know using your imagination, putting yourself in a place that maybe didn't happen. Yeah. But its I feel like I do that accidentally sometimes when I see people having an experience with a dad and then I put myself automatically in a place that was my dad and I'm kind of weirdly experiencing it, not through them, but like through my imagination. So I'm happy an episode yeah. like that even does that seriously, but it helps me.
0: Be yeah. I mean like it this. just, you know, it's being willing to talk about it.
1: We got sometimes we got to talk. Let's talk about it. You know, what I mean I don't, I don't know. It, it goes a long way and it, and sometimes talking isn't for everyone, but maybe listening is. So I don't know. We're, but
0: that's exactly right. You don't have to be active. You can be passive. Yeah, and that works right? too. Right, that also. But it's the act of sharing that leads to the listening. Yeah, just well, it leads to the validation that allows people to Calm their systems down to sort of believe that maybe it's okay, even though it does not. All the people, the people that we were at the party with last night, you know, people kept saying to me, if you had told me when, you know, insert whatever are terrible things, every one of our colleagues got into the grief and loss space because of their own personal experience. If you had told me when this terrible thing had happened, that any of this camaraderie and goodness and growth was possible. I would have told you, like, you're talking to the wrong person. You've got the wrong girl. But it turns out that that is the case for many, many, many people. All over. All over. Like, the survival rate for the thing that we say we can't survive, it's not 100%, of course, but it's much higher than it feels like in that moment. And the more we can sort of like talk to people and say like, no, I, wa- I was so sick. I had two master's degrees, 20 years of experience in the field of grief and loss. And I got so sick so fast. I just check myself into an inpatient facility. Trust me. I know how bad you feel. I don't know the specifics, but I get it. That's real. Right? It's real. That's right. If anyone should have (laughs) circumnavigated it, if anyone should have been like, hey, I'm going to skip to the end. I go, you know, $200 for pass and go. Yeah. And that's not what happened. Much to my chagrin, I was pretty pissed.
1: Yeah, so don't be surprised if you feel like shit. It's okay. Yeah. It literally, literally happens to everyone.
0: If you feel like shit, you're doing it right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if you smell like shit, that's something else.
0: That's uh, a different problem. That's
1: yeah, a different problem. Uh, tell people where can they, I'm going to put the links in the bio as yeah. usual, but tell people where they can find your book and all that.
0: End of the hours everywhere, so you can get it on Amazon. For whatever reason, it's perpetually on sale. They said it was only going to be a couple of days, so you could start there. You know, if you have a problem with the the, the big tech um, bookstores, it's at Barnes & Noble. It's at your local bookstore. It's published by Zibby Books. Zibby Owens, she has a bookstore in Santa Monica, so you can go mm. pick it up there. Yeah. Um, and then you can come find me. My, my podcast is called Grief is My Side Hustle. I interview a lot of our colleagues, Um, and talk about their grief experiences. And then I'm mostly active on Instagram because I'm like an old lady and I can't do more than one platform. Oh boy, that's too much. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see all the things I'm doing. The book tour is going to be on for a while. So I'll be in different cities and I have a small team of people who are extraordinary who help. So if you have questions about what we talked about, you can DM me we'll answer somebody somebody smart will try to say something good
1: there we go we'll put the, again all the links in the bio check the show notes wherever click below wherever the heck you're looking at it and uh, check her out and Megan thank you so much thank this you is a, this is a blast thank you Seriously. such an honor alright until next time dead talkers we out later